cliffcentral.com. So this is the absolutely astonishing volume, which I've spoken about to the author before. He is the incredibly talented and ambitious Simon Seabag Montefiore. I say ambitious only because of the, the scope of this work. You looked at me almost as if I was being, you know, like Caesar was ambitious in Brutus's speech. Yes, um, yes. Here he is. He's this time in South Africa, I'm very pleased to say. And he's in our studio today. Simon, it's a great pleasure to meet you in person. It's great to meet you in person. We've done, we've talked before. We have. And I think what you do is great. By Thank the way, and I, I love the podcast. I love I love what you're what, you know, what, the way you do it. So great to be here in reality. Well, I mean, first of all, we've got to mention to people that the world is still available. I've seen it in all good bookstores, and it is colourful beyond measure. It's beautifully designed, and it also contains some of the most wonderful stories from history. I think it's a great introduction to people who are massive history buffs, and also to those who are. Totally novice, total novices to history. It, it could be the greatest introduction. That's the, that's the idea. I mean, the idea is it's, it's, it's based in scholarship, but it can be read by anybody. You don't have to know anything. And you don't have to start at the beginning. You can start in the middle or, well, the, or read it backwards. Well, I want to ask you about that because you have, you've made an incredible career in life out of studying history and, and telling those stories to the rest of us. And it seems to me that with the democratization of the internet and everything else that there are a lot of people who fancy themselves historians. Do you think it, it's still massively important for those credentials to be a part of it and for you to call to distinguish between the amateur historian and the professional historian? In, in your case, the professional well, one. Well, I don't believe in, I don't believe in, um, sort of professional versus amateur. I mean, I think it's really like you, you have to win the trust of readers that you're, it's all about judgment. And I don't think, I think anyone who writes history is a historian. Um, but I think, you know, obviously, you know, the internet, um, is an amazing reservoir or can be an amazing reservoir of facts and knowledge, but it's also a charter for ignoramuses and pub bores to, um, to, to lecture people, um, pedantically on things they know nothing about. And, um, and, and it's just a matter of differentiating between those two, between those two, um, types. And actually, I think that, you know, anyone who says they're a historian is a historian. There are, though, those elements of history which are propagandistic. And we know that he who controls the story, these days they talk about the narrative in politics. But those people have largely guided the way that history has been understood for, for many generations. And by those people, I mean, you know, Augustus famously had his press corps. Alexander the Great went through the, the, the known world at that point with his uh, fan club writing down much of the story. Um, you could call it propaganda, but thank God that they did. Otherwise, we might not have known any of it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, all rulers have tried to control the narrative. And um, you know, and throughout history, ideology has tried to control and straitjacket the writing of history. And, you know, the historian's duty is really um, not to be a polemicist and, um, and, and I, an ideologist. Uh, but to but to try and get as close to the truth as possible. Now that's a that's a that's a um, big ask, and you know we've got to we've got to be we've got to show humility in in the fact that we can't always get close to it. Much of it is a is a matter of judgment. History is not a pure discipline um, like physics or something, right? Um, or mathematics. <clears throat> um, it's always a mixture between um, judgment, um, scholarship. Um, it involves a lot of statistics and data. Um, and it involves a lot of imagination and it's all, it's about writing. So it's a mixture of so many disciplines and, you know, one tries to put it all together. I mean, nowadays it's brilliant because we've got all these new, 
um, you know, genetics, for example. We've got these new scientific advances that, that you know, mm. make history even more interesting and complex. But the key thing is, you know, to reject the old, reject the old ideologies, but not just embrace the new ones, which are just as distorting. So, so it is a big challenge. And I, you know, in this, in the world, I try to, I try to balance these really, these really complex, um, these complex, uh, uh, things while also writing a book that's accessible to everybody. And, you know, and, and also, you know, much of writing history today is about, and this has probably always been so, is about overcoming, um, the, the petty obsessions of the present. And, you know, if one could, one would write much better history if one didn't have the present, the baggage of the present at all. But of course, we're all the part of the present. And many of the, the things, um, that make the world what it is, in my book, I mean, um, are things that are very much of the present and are very positive. I mean, mm. for example, you know, the diversity, you know, having Africa. W- women, for a start. Women, yeah. Africa. I mean, you know, you know, since we're sitting here in Joburg, you know, Africa, um, this is the most African his- world history ever written. And, you know, I, one of the great joys of writing it was writing about Africa, um, not just South Africa, but Southern Africa, mm. North Africa, you know, the Maghreb, West yeah. Africa, um, and East Africa, where, you know, which is a, which few people study actually, and more people should know about. Um, so that's one of the joys of it. Then women, as you say, Cliff, which is, you know, again, neglected. Um, but this, this book is filled with women. And then, of course, you know, covering things that are very, very of, of the moment, interests and fast obsessions of the moment, like slavery. So th- there is this very difficult balancing act that has to be performed where you want to be close enough to the history to be able to have reliable sources. It's easier to write about the 1800s than it is about ancient Greece, Correct. for example. But you also don't want to be so far away from it. I mean, you need, a, you need a bit of distance, as you point out, about the present. Otherwise, it can get very confusing because it starts to be colored by present-day experiences. What do you think there's an ideal point for the historian, a vantage point for the historian to be at? Yeah, but um, defining it is almost impossible. <laughs> I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, it needs to be, because it's sort of storytelling and, and, and it has to be colorful, it has to be exciting. And why? Because life is like that. You know, life is exciting and colorful and filled with extraordinary characters. But you also have to step back from life to analyze it and see um, the meaning of all of this. You know, so you don't, you don't just, I mean, that, you know, journalism is often described as the first, it's the first draft of history, but actually it isn't. It's not even that. I mean, journalism really does reflect the sort of a frenzy, the, the, the Twitter frenzy of the day. Oh, yeah. And the Twitter frenzy of the day, you know, the, the interesting thing about the internet, because we all have to live now with the internet and the internet is so important in history in some ways. Um, but the, the, you know, the problem with it is, and the strange thing about it is that people are in a kind of fury, a rage, on, on day, on one day, mm. um, you know, they are literally writing the most vituperative things. They're screaming. They're accusing people of God knows what. A week later, 10 days later, they're thinking slightly the better of it. And, 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 but they feel no, um, reason to explain what they did no. 10 days earlier. And two weeks or three weeks later, they've completely forgotten about it and moved on to something else. Absolutely. You know, so I think so it's maybe sort of, they should have a little compassion for the historian. Well, they should have a little <laughs> compassion for whoever it is that they're, whatever it is they're writing about, because, because Twitter is very transient. The passions of the rages of Twitter, the rages and furies of Twitter are very transient. So I want to pick up where we left off last time. Um, you won't remember, but I, I, I made a mental note of this. 
thinking and hoping that we'd meet again. You, you finished writing your book on the day of the invasion of the Ukraine. Correct. And when we spoke about this, already much had happened, which could have been an addendum to the book. And I was just curious, in the last five months or so, whether any of these stories have changed so significantly that you feel um, that perhaps this is the, exactly what we were talking about, the, the example of history moving in real time and being able to, to figure it out from the right vantage point. Do you think we've got any more clarity on what's going on here? Are you pretty much sure yeah. that your, your original suppositions were correct? I mean, actually, funny enough, I've just been updating the conclusion for, um, for the paperback because it's going to come out, you know, later in the year. Um, and, um, but, you know, basically, um, I, I stand by what I wrote in the conclusion because the way it's structured is it ends on the, as you said it, it, mm. correctly, it ends on the day of the invasion. And even when I wrote it, it was clear that the Ukrainians had defeated the Russian um, advance on Kiev. But uh, I finish on a, I finish the book, the main part of the book on a sort of cliffhanger saying, you know, the Russians invaded dot, dot, dot. Um, but the conclusion takes the book really forward, you know, for the next 50, 100 years and, and encapsulating, encompassing what's happened so far. But I mean, all sorts of extraordinary things have happened since we spoke last. Um, yeah. I mean, just this, this week we've had, uh, Xi and Putin get together and yeah. sign all kinds of, um, treaties that will ensure that their sovereignty is, is, is yes. supported by the other, includes Taiwan. It includes other parts of the former Soviet Union, which Vladimir Putin is laying claim to. It involves currencies. It involves uh, almost a new world order of some kind. And I don't want to sound like one of these conspiracy theorists, but you know, India is a big part of this too. Yes. They've, they've been, very carefully neutral. I've been in India since I last saw you. And? Or, or, on, um, since we last spoke. Well, it's very fascinating. I mean, you just realize that, um, there's a, there are huge parts of the world that don't buy into the, um, our, our democratic, uh, narrative of what's happening in, in Ukraine. And they see things differently. And their first, you know, their first, um, that, their, their sort of judge, their criteria for judging this is not just whether there's a good democracy there or not. Mm. Whether the people, whether the people don't want to live under Russian control, they're they're looking at things in a much more ge geopolitical way, um, and of course they're very affected by their vision of his of imperial history, right? You know, um, which is which is which is slightly sort of wrong in the sense that, of course, you know, Russia, no nowhere has a, a history of imperialism like Russia, so but but there's a sort of great hostility to to Western the Western American. Um, the Western and American narrative. And I guess what we're really seeing is, which you see throughout the book, is, you know, the problem of being the, the, the prime power. You know, it happened with, for example, the Spanish Empire. Mm. You know, in the, in the sort of 15th, 16th centuries, the Spanish Empire was the greatest empire, um, on earth. And of course, being the, being the tallest poppy, the fattest poppy too. Yeah. Um, hegemony there, only lasts there, so long. Yeah, and there are real problems with being the hegemon. Um, one is that, you know, you have to keep on take, there's no, there's no end to being the hegemon. You have mm. to keep on taking on new, um, responsibilities, which, which you can't afford and you don't want to afford, but you have to do it to stop somebody else getting to them. If you don't do that, someone else steps in. And we've seen that, you know, with the Obama, what you might call the Obama doctrine, which is like, don't do anything stupid. Let's step back. Well, Actually, that's, that doesn't really work because if you step back, yeah. somebody else steps in. Correct. And the other thing, the other part of it is 
when you are the top hegemon, um, you know, everyone, everyone wants to, you're the one to bring down. Correct. You know, <laughs> so that's another thing. Everyone reacts against you. And we saw that with Spain, for example, you know, the, the Dutch and the British really, really rebounded, um, in, in the wars against Spain. And Spain, the wars against Spain really provided them with their kind of, um, with their momentum to become great powers, which South Africa particularly experienced. Not just South Africa, but many parts of Africa. Oh, yeah. Because there was, there, there were so many wars between. You know, and, the, the, and then, of course, the New World. And the New World. And, 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 the New World. and Britain was a great heir to the destruction of Spain. Yes. I mean, the Dutch sort of made the first attempt. Um, you know, to get hold of it. And, you know, that really, that, that course that involved, that involved you guys down here. Um, and, but there was also, they tried to grab West Africa. They tried to, you know, they had New York, New Amsterdam and all mm-hmm. that. They tried to seize Brazil, um, uh, from the Portuguese because the Portuguese and Spanish crowns were then united and they overreached. They were kind of, they were kind of defeated by the British, the English as it was then. And then the English became the real heirs to the Spanish Empire. But you've got to admire that pluckiness of the Dutch. And you can even see yeah. it now. I mean, there was a, an election. Beggars. Oh, yeah. And this tiny little piece of land, yeah. which just completely outperforms on almost every scale. It's really quite something. Well, you realize that empire is a sort of – empire is really a kind of um, – it's it's a psychological state of mind because you, you know these countries, the Dutch and the English, are tiny, really. Yeah, and they take on the whole world through confidence, energy, ingenuity, creativity. Um, you know, empires is, is is rightly questioned and out of fashion now. But actually, um, these it's really just. There should be less of a fetish about it. It's less. It's just a fact. But you of, also of, you- of government and state statehood. You also mentioned something just now, which I think is also quite relevant. Um, when people think of empire, they tend to think most, especially of the most recent Western empires of kind of, you know, the American, British before that and so on. But empire has been a fact of civilization since ancient Persia and Egypt. Yeah. I mean, and you could argue it's always been the goal of states to become empires. Yes. I mean, empires, are, you know, states have always been um, states with mass. You know, in population and and scale of, and geographical scale, um, you know that that's essential for power. Um, you, you, ultimately, uh, first of all, and secondly, um, and secondly, you know, those states are always likely to dominate other peoples around them and and further afield. And so, yeah, empire is just a word for um, the natural the natural expansion of of powerful states. Um, and you know, we always we just think of the British, the British High Empire, and everyone, of course, in history, everyone's still reacting against the British British power. Um, and, and before that, it was Rome. I yeah. mean, you know, we could argue that pretty much most of European history post the fall of Rome was aspiring to recreate what at, at its apogee what ancient Rome might have been. Oh yeah, because even sort of. When you look at the Umayyads, for example, yeah. the, 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 the caliphs who ruled the Arabia. whole Arab empire from, from Damascus, you know, they were Muslim, but they were really kind of, they were really kind of channeling Roman, em- they were, they lived like Roman emperors. And we owe them a great debt of gratitude for having kept so much of ancient Greek and ancient Roman literature and philosophy alive of during course. a period in the dark ages where Western Europe was really quite Retrograde. Yeah, but well, that, I, I, that's quite a sort of – people always say that. Of course, they've forgotten that, you know, the Byzantine Empire and Constantinople existed throughout this period right up until 1453 as every, everybody <laughs> knows. And, of course, they had all the Greek – they had all the Greek literature there. So, in fact, 
You know, this because one reads again and again in Western history books that you know we owe everything to the Arabs of the Abbasids and the House of Wisdom. Um, but actually, they, they, they were just, they were translating something that was readily available in Constantinople at any you make, point. You make a very good point. Um, I, I was in Istanbul for the first time uh, in October last year. Just amazing, isn't it? Oh, what a place. And, you know, to see something like that serpentine column in, in the Hippodrome yeah. and to imagine that the bronze that that's made of was bronze that was melted down from shields and, and so, supposedly and swords from the Battle of Salamis. Wow. And that, it was originally kept near the Temple of Apollo at Delphi, the mm. Delphic Oracle. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is a this is a chain of history which is just it gives you goosebumps. Yeah, I mean, these things are so fascinating, and you know, Constantine. I just love Constantine. I made a I made a BBC series about it once, and um, I may have seen it. <laughs> you may have seen it. <laughs> you you may have been my research before going to <laughs> Istanbul. Well, it was just like it was just a joy. You know, one of the I had such a I had such a wonderful you know sort of t- ten years of making these. BBC series and it was just lovely living in these great and the joy of it was living in great cities for sort of a couple of months that's why I did them really well let me ask you then because I think we're two history nerds and the people who are going to really take interest in this are going to be the people who want to know all of this uh, detail which maybe other people would think is is uninteresting but out of all the places you've visited where are you most desperate to go again and again and again because there's just such a, a richness of history to be exploited or things that you want to see Things that just keep that that love for the subject alive. Well, well, I do. I love Constantinople, but the places I really want to go are in Iran. Oh, um, I because, couldn't agree more. Because and in, you know, in Iran, the problem is, I don't know. I, I think I, I don't think I'd last long in Iran at the moment. So I think um, probably better not to go. Well, so they're not um, very keen on people with British passports. I British think, and passports American and, and you know, but to go um, to Persepolis, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, in the book, in the book, I mean, I've I've sort of. Persia is so important. Iran is so important, and Persia. And well, you start with a card, Sargon of a card. That's right. right. That and right. and to go back to the book, I mean, what's amazing about this is you don't just tell the story of Sargon, which is, you know, it's it's we've got only a little bit of information. It's been overplayed, but this is where the imagination kicks in. Yeah. And you talk more about the family, and you talk more about his daughter, and you talk about that that aspect of what it must have been like to live at that time. Well, Ender Juana is like a fascinating character, the daughter. Yes. Because you know, we know very little about her. She may not have been, she's very unlikely to have been the authoress of all the things, all the works ascribed to her. But, but she really is the first, the first sort of princess we really know in person, the first authoress, named authoress we know in person, the first, um, the first, the first person who's sort of a survivor of sexual abuse that we know in person and the first person who wrote about it. So, She's, that's why I started the book with her, because when I sort of studied her, I realized this person is a very kind of modern, a, a very modern person. She resonates with the 21st century. Um, and she's a sort of clear signal of what I'm trying to do in the book, what new yeah. I want to do in the book. Or, you know, and, and so, so I started with her and a lot of people haven't heard of her, but a lot of people have. And she's just one of those characters that it's important to understand. And so, um, but, Come back to Iran. Yeah, there's so much. And there are also so many empires that we don't know about. You know, we, we all know about Cyrus the Great and, Dur- and Darius and the, you know, invading Greece. But that was just a sideshow for there's them. There's a very, I used to love Asterix as a child. Oh, I do too. I see you have a poster here. <laughs> we do. Mm. Asterix because in the, 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 the book on Mesopotamia, whatever it might have been, the Assyrians yeah. Yeah. conquer the, 
Babylonians who conquered the Sumerians. I mean, it's, it's, it, they've mixed up the chronology, but basically you've got all these different empires, these tribes, which ranged over hundreds of years of history. Yeah. It wasn't all condensed over a very short period. You've got people like Nebuchadnezzar and people like Cyrus. And, you know, these are, these are people who, who would deserve, uh, whole chapters in, and in your book, they do get more than a cursory glance, which is, which is only right. But all of these were quite distinct. Very you know, different. Babylonia distinct, was yeah. very different from Assyria. Yes. Which again was very different from Persia and, and Sumeria. Yeah. I mean, I've, t- I've taken a real delight in the book in, in really differentiating these people and, and, and telling the story in some detail of how the Persians and the Medes took over this empire. And, um, and, you know, one needs to, and then, and of course, the subsequent Persian empires, the Sass, you know, the, you know, the Sassan, the, the, the Sassan, the House of Sassan, Sassan yeah. and, um, and so on. Um, and the Parthians and what have you. I mean, they were the other superpower of the era along with the East and West Rome. And, um, and, and, you know, it, it's been really, it was really fun researching that. And I, I think it's kind of key. We understand it. I mean, Persia is one of those powers that, um, appears, often appears in histories, you know, at the time of the invasion of, of Greece, you know, but actually with no real knowledge of the rest of the empire and how it worked. Do you think they were just less good at recording their history or do you think much of that was destroyed when Alexander burnt Persepolis well, by mistake? Well, I, th- I think some was probably, but I also think they didn't have the same concept of narrative history. And lots of other people don't, by the way, even now, even in the 20th century, even the 21st century, a lot of people don't have that narrative style of history. So, you know, who do you, do, do you like Herodotus? I love Herodotus. I love Herodotus. I love Thucydides. Um, I love all these ancient historians. I love Suetonius. Oh yeah. Um, and um, and I think you know, Suetonius is sort of vanished books. You know, there was of course we know about the twelve Caesars, but I think there was also a vanished book that was lost called the Greatest Halls of History. Oh which, wow. Which I think, <laughs> which I think, um, which I think is a sort of you know c- could be essential reading. Absolutely. Um, but you know, but Suetonius's life is interesting because. You know, he was, he was in the court of, of, of Hadrian and his wife. He was one of the, and, and then he vanishes. And one just wonders what happened to him because Hadrian was such an interesting character. You know, he was, he was probably the most talented, one of the most talented uh-huh. people to rule Rome, but he was also like a lot of powerful people, quite pretty touchy. He didn't, oh, want, yeah. he didn't want to cross him. He once stabbed one of his secretaries in the eye with his, with a pen and blinded him. So. He had to be pretty careful around, around uh, Hadrian. What he, did he, yet, yet he doesn't get the treatment of Caligula or Nero because he managed to administer such extraordinary empire at its height. I mean, yeah. maybe he just gets a pass because stabbing the secretary in the eye is not really a big deal when you're doing all the other things that he was doing well. Yeah, but even the archi- <laughs> even the architecture is just beautiful. You know, the, you know, the, the, the pantheon. The pantheon, Rome, which he improved, yeah. Um, you know, his mausoleum. I mean, these places. I mean, actually, he's, he's got to be one of the great, he's got to be one of the, um, I mean, just for the architecture, I mean, he's got to be the greatest builder, um, with, with, with just a few other people up there with Justinian, Abdul Malik with the Dome of the Rock. There are a few of these uh, people who've built these amazing buildings. Or, or, Augustus and Agrippa might take issue with you. Remember, he yes. famously said he'd inherited it brick and left it marble. Correct. And Herod the Great, of course, with the temple. Yeah. Not much of it's left, but. You know, so of all these places, because I can, I can already sense something that I'm sure we both have simpatico about is, is the idea of these places that are no longer there or were once there. The, the original temple of Solomon in Jerusalem or even the later one, Herod's temple, uh, the library of Alexandria, uh, 
I mean, if you could get into a time machine, I think it would be your idea of heaven. Yeah, the Parthenon. I mean, I'd love to the have been Parthenon. at the Parthenon with Pericles and Phidias's and make huge sculptures and, um, you know, all intact. I mean, that would be, that would be one of the places I'd love to go, I'd love to go to. Um, Where do you stand on the marbles being returned or not? Um, yeah, I, I, I don't <laughs> It's very mind. controversial. Yeah, story. I don't, I, 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 I sort of, I, I just think that, you know, um, history is very complicated. I mean, it's, you know, unraveling everything is pretty difficult. I think that where they end up reflects what happened in history. And I do think, you know, with all the sort of the talk now about ret- returning, uh, returning, um, of, um, of artifacts and reparations mm. and, um, you know, what I believe is that, you know, perpetrators should be prosecuted if you can get them, however old they are. Um, but I don't think you should blame, you know, families, you know, descendants for, for, um, what, what their, you know, what their ancestors did. And I think always the best sort of the best revenge, the best redemption is just, to, is just the illumination of what happened without, without, um, without hiding anything, without concealment, um, blaming, blame where blame is, is due. And that includes, you know, the things the British Empire did in, in, our, in other words, where it comes to slavery, the fact that Britain was the greatest slave trader for a hundred years, um, we we should definitely that should Don't that should over it. that should be part of education. Yeah. Everyone should know about that. But it should also be part of education that Wilberforce was this incredible Correct. man who saw into the future and Correct. knew what was right to do, and that the British eventually sought out slave yeah. trade and and sought to end it at their own cost. They did, and it was you know, and the fact is that was the beginning of of the the end of slavery as an international commodity, as an international trade that had gone on everywhere. In China, in East Africa, in the Indian Ocean, in in, in the in the Americas, in, within Africa itself, mm. um, had it gone on since the beginning of time. I mean, one of the first documents in the book is a, is about a slave in Sum- in ancient Sumeria. So slavery shoots through, um, grows through all human life right up until the 1830s when it started to change. And of course, you know, America America had slavery for another 30 years after that. Ah, um, we, we, we definitely Brazil need to. Brazil for longer. Brazil for longer. I mean, there's still, there's still slavery being perpetuated in parts of the world today. And, and it's a, a very sad state of affairs in some places yeah. that this is still going on. I'm, I'm curious. I just want to go down this flight of fantasy quickly into the time machine. Oh, yeah. Because. Let's fly on the time what, machine. What event, because we've been to where? I mean, they're probably, you know, the Parthenon's a great yeah. answer. We, and we won't spend the whole day going from place to place, but. What event would you have liked to have seen the real truth of? Because there are either conflicting versions or because you don't believe the version that you've read or because you just would love to have seen it with your own eyes. Well, of course, of course, the life of Jesus Christ, because it's because it's so massively important. Um, this is this yeah. is just such a yeah. great thing to have stumbled upon, although yeah. it's not stumbling. Yeah, um, we'd love to this, have been this there intersection for that. between religion and history and the fact that. You know, some people say, well, it's a historian's job to cover Socrates, but not Jesus. And you can't avoid this man had, whether he was exactly as described in the Bible or not, and whether other sources can be found or not, the effect is just absolutely astonishing. Yeah. And it's, you know, and just, and also just the sort of progress of early Christianity, the Nazarenes and, and, you know, it started off as a sort of family business. It was run by his brother after him and then his cousin so it was the, the, you know, what most people don't realize is in the early sort of the first 30 years was, it was a sort of family business. 
on the Nazarenes. And it really changed. It was, the, the change really happened 70 after the fall of the temple, um, in Jerusalem when, when it, it separated from or what was, what they then regarded as an unlucky mother religion, which was clearly on the losing side of history. Right. And everyone wants to be on the winning side of history. So, so they kind of, they cut off. How the different, Jews. how do you, how different do you think the relationship between international Jewry and Christianity might have been had that Sundering not happened. Well, it, 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 it could well have been part of, stayed part of um, the Jewish religion and never, never emerged as the world religion. But I mean, it emerged as the world religion because of the decision of one man 300 years later, obviously, Constantine. obviously Constantine. And his mother. And his mother. You know, we talk about women. Yeah. And Helena had an extraordinary influence on him. Yeah. And you, you spent quite a, you spent quite a bit of time yeah, on her. Yeah, because too. it was just so interesting. I mean, Political decisions are really the sort of dominating thing with, with religion. I mean, the, the, the Prophet Muhammad um, was always a, a, a political fit leader as well, mm. and he created a state, <clears throat> and, a, and, a, and and you know he, he he was concerned with with faith and religion as well as as well as politics. So the event would be the life of Jesus. Yeah, I think the death of Jesus. And, and the who, if you could, what character? Because again, this book is chock full of the most amazingly interesting people. And without being a hagiography of any one particular person and without it having to be specific to their achievements yeah. or the things that have been written about them, who do you think is really, I mean, leaving Jesus out because of the events you've just described. Yeah, I think Shark Zulu would be fascinating. Oh. Of, course, of course, you know, we're in South Africa. So, um, you know, the, the, the Mefakani and what happened, the forming of, of, of Southern Africa is like a huge part of my book. And, you know, what I, what I wanted to show was that, you know, the portrayal of Shaka, um, has been, has benefited many people. You know, uh, the, 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 the portrait of him as a sort of psychopathic lunatic, um, uh, a sort of monster has benefited all sorts of people for a hundred, over a hundred years. Um, and actually we need to, we need to reassess what the Zulu, the, the effect of the Zulu I hope is on the creation of Southern Africa. And that's all in the book, a new take on that. I hope you'll be here long enough for that you'll have a chance to go down to KwaZulu Natal and, and see some of the places there because I, I have I'm, seen, I have seen some of those battlefields. Yeah. I am absolutely obsessed with Zulu history. I've got a, a friend called Muzi Kuzwayo who's promised me he's going to take me on a tour to meet village elders who have oral histories to tell. I wish I, I wish I could come. In Zulu. I that. mean, it's just this stuff. I remember at primary school, yeah. just being fascinated with the story of Shaka. I mean, he was a hero of mine. Yeah. And that despite the narrative, which portrayed him the way that you've already explained, here was a guy who had built an empire in the Southern part of Africa, an empire, which took on the mightiest one in the world. And on a few occasions, one also had the Boers to contend with. Yeah. And managed to survive. I mean, to this day, there is a descendant of, of Sezangakona on the throne. Yeah. Amazing, isn't it? It's quite something. Yeah. And the, the you know, I, that's, and that's very fascinating to me. But, you know, what, I, because it's a world history, I can step back a bit as well and, and show what was happening in the whole of Africa at that time and how all these things were linked together, even in this vast continent from, from Sudan and Egypt all the way down. Mm. Through, through West Africa. And of course, um, early history all belongs to Africa. The yeah. very earliest. Yeah, it all starts all, in Africa. Which is, history. So that's all, those, that's all very important to understand. And the complexity of Africa, the fact that it isn't all one place and it isn't all one culture. 
um, is, is also interesting. You know, while recognizing its special experience, its special tragedy with Atlantic slavery. Absolutely. Now, where would you least like to have been in history? I'm going to give you a couple of options here. Would you least like to have been a victim of Roman Gallic expansion hmm. when Caesar went in and, and conquered Vercingetorix and the disparate tribes of Gaul? Would you least have liked to have been in the Yucatan Peninsula when the Spanish arrived or in India when the British were at the height of their mighty expansion in, in, in that part of the subcontinent. Well, these, these, are, these are pretty unpalatable choices. All of them are awful. Them. But actually, you know, the, Brit- the British in India is the answer because, um, you know, the British, the British arrived in an India that was falling apart in complete chaos. And, um, and, and they imposed their empire there. They looted Bengal. Um, they, were, they were extremely ruthless in building the empire. But then but then they did restore peace for, for quite a long time. Um, they brutally crushed the Indian mutiny. Every empire has to have an act of sort of massive violence to impose its force. Do you think the Queen Camilla should wear the Kohinoor diamond at the no, coronation? I she, no, I think the Queen has made the right decision with the Kohinoor diamond. Um, cause the, but the Kohinoor diamond, um, it's, a sort of, it's always presented as a sort of uniquely – um, unique crime of the British Empire, but in fact, this diamond was the bauble of every conqueror. Oh, absolutely, um, and, and, and passed actually, from bloody hand to bloody hand. And I don't regard the British Empire as as, as morally different um, from Nadir Shah, for example, or the Lion of the Punjab, um, Ranjit Singh, um, or any of the other uh, other sort of brutal warlords who conquered it and and passed it on. Um, to other people, to other empires, to the successive empires. I just don't regard the British empires as we have to be sort of treat them any differently right. from just, just because, just because they're white. And just because they're now. And just and because their, they're their recent. descendants are around. Just we, because they're recent. Yeah. You know, we don't hold the Persians responsible for, um, for, for destruction of, of ancient Greece yeah, anymore. But there's, there's a great, <laughs> There's a great Anglo-centricity, mm. a sort of little England version that, you know, that the British Empire is the only empire to have ever existed. And in this book, I, I treat the British Empire very like I treat the French Empire or, or, you know, the Dutch Empire or the Spanish or Portuguese empires, which is, which is, you know, simply a state organism that, um, that committed many crimes, always started with violence, um, and then, um, and then struggled to hold their empire, you know. Well, one of the things that's, I, I always say is this is the best time to be alive. I mean, we've got running water and electricity and we have, uh, a good ablution and we have good, you know, systems. And obviously there are huge problems still that we're trying to overcome and climate is one of those things and, and our destruction of the natural environment and the fact that cities are expanding at a rate of knots. And there's, there's lots to contend with, but it's still, I think, a quite salubrious time to be alive. The best time to be alive in history. But if yeah. you did have to choose another time. Um, I would choose, I would choose, um, Harun Rao Rashid in, in, in Baghdad. Really? Um, I would choose the Arab, um, the Arab, the great golden age of Arab rule in Baghdad, um, of the Abbasid dynasty, the thousand and one nights. Um, if you read that chapter in the book, um, you'll find some of the most. Are we talking about 1100? No, no, we're talking about sort of, um, 800. 800. Um, so in the ninth century, um, if you read that chapter, you'll find some of the most outrageous, erotic, and bawdy poetry and writing <laughs> uh, that you'll ever see anywhere, and you'll be surprised that this is 
the ultimate Islamic civilization, and yet you know it's unrecognizable. It would be, un- it would be un- no one would write dare write such things now. But these writers, um, it's a world of kind of caliphs and potentates and and song and dance and poetry and sex and oh, bisexuality. Wonderful. It's all there, and actually that's the time to. Of course, you had to be in the right kind of literary. Um, political um, circles, yeah, you had to be in the right class, probably, um, because there was also slavery in the oh, yeah. in the marshes of Iraq, and there was there was actually almost chattel slavery. There was there were there were Africans working in those in those um, marshes, um, making growing sugarcane. Well, of course, we also have to when we look at European history, people tend to look at it from a class point of view too, and. You know, in that case, the, the, the very poor and the very lowest classes were always just cannon fodder and, and hard labor. But being a nobleman was not necessarily more healthy and, and guaranteeing of a long life. I mean, many of them had to mount up and go to war endlessly for stupid causes. Uh, they also were always the, the, the focus of plots and connivery within their own families. Yeah. So it wasn't necessarily, it might have been more materially comfortable. For some of them, but I think probably because of all the the incredible uh, political machinations, could have also been absolutely exhausting. Yeah, but another thing about it, which I think is interesting, is that for until sort of the 18th century, late in the 18th century, even the beginning of the 19th century, um, it was better to be to be a to be if you were ill, it was better to be a peasant than to be a noble with the most expensive medical care, because doctors were so um, were so murderous. They they usually killed their patients. I mean, and even recently, much, up to yeah. George the Third, they were yes. they were doing monstrous things. Monstrous. I mean, he was he was being poisoned with arsenic, which would have exactly if he if he may already have been bipolar or schizophrenic or whatever, whatever he whatever um you know mental illness he suffered from, but arsenic poisoning would definitely have made it a lot worse. All right. Well, it's very difficult to to ask questions about your favorite this and your favorite that but we've gone through those and i'm very very happy with all these answers um i i think that there are probably still things undiscovered what what part of history do you think is a big gap which which needs some filling where are there the least sources and the most curiosity for you well i think much of african history actually um there's such i mean we we know about for example you know among african empires only we, recently did people discover, rediscover yeah. Timbuktu and yeah. the incredible exactly. Ghanaian empires. Exactly. There are a lot of, I mean, there's, there's huge parts of the sort Mansa of, Musa. Of, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's huge parts of that that we just, we just don't know about. They weren't written and the, there would have been some sort of records, oral records or some, or whatever, but they are lost, um, for now. And, and similarly in South America, there's mm. so much I'd love to know about South America, which we don't know and just, just the extraordinary artifacts are left, but we can only guess um, how it all worked and how it all fitted together. So those are, the, those are the places I'd love to have known more about. What is the question most people ask you as a historian? Um, they may, well, well <clears throat> nowadays they mainly ask about Ukraine, but on mm. the book they mainly ask, like, why and how? And, um, you know... As in why a, write it? Was it a, yeah, why write it? How did you write it? And, you know... Um, was it a COVID book? Was it a lockdown book? Which, of course, it, it was written in, in lockdown. But you'd planned to write something like this before. I had, yeah. And, I, and, you know, but COVID, you know, really made it easier because I, I was wondering if I'd ever kind of be able to sort of do it, ever be able to pull it off and ever be able to complete it. Um, How were your family about all of that? They never hear, want to hear the word world ever again. <laughs> 
and um and uh they 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 were just like they just couldn't believe that i was actually doing it but they they sort of had faith um they're used to my i mean the only way to write these books is by complete obsession a life of immerse you know immersing yourself in this in it and total obsession the trouble with this was it never ended you know there was always another book coming out which i would order or get hold of instantly read it read it overnight almost and then encapsulate it encompass it in the book um commandeer it's you know commandeer its ideas if i like them and um, you said something interesting you said you did all the editing so there was there was obviously some stuff you decided to chop out there was well i had you- a brilliant i had the best sort of line editor copy editor in england who's, who's called peter james um who's done did all my early stalin books too who's a sort of genius um so but that was that's but the actual editing of the book um you know it's very hard to you know i, I had a brilliant young editor um but but you know you have to basically do this yourself because when you're writing the history of the world not many people can edit it not many people you know are, are, are expert enough to sort of well no one is really and, and even i wasn't expert enough to write it you know i mean I, I i did all the research myself basically um but then but then what i got right was getting experts to to check their bit their bits and sitting at the feet of great the great professors of harvard and princeton and cambridge and oxford um who checked, you know, the Dutch, you know, the Dutch ascent, you know, the golden age of Holland or the, 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 the Tang of China. Um, is that, and they a, corrected it. Is that quite a scary process or are you completely objective about your own work? Because it's very difficult for an author, especially one as experienced and expert as you are yourself to hand this over and say, all right, make corrections where you think necessary. I mean, it's, 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 it's the opposite of egocentricity. Yeah, I mean, you've got to be, you've got to be pretty humble and, um, and, and some of their, some of their replies were, were, were pretty pungent. Um, I, I, my eyes would sometimes. Were there some people who you thought they're just getting back at me for something a long yeah, time ago? Yeah, well, there, there, some of them were just very intolerant and just said, this is just disgraceful. You know, you must, <laughs> you must change. But the great thing was that virtually, that even the, the most kind of brutal of them, um, also said, like, no, what you, but you have got something here. Right. And that was interesting. For example, you know, in Chinese history, um, you know, I've done a very personal, his, personal histories. I've taken a lot of the sort of chronicles of the anti-court chronicles, um, to show, you know, how the court worked with the emperors. And they said, well, you kind of, you're, you're using a lot of the sort of, um, oral histories, the sort of what they call dirty histories mm. in, um, in China, in Chinese scholarship. But they said, like, you know, actually, there is a, there is a, um, there is an argument to make to, to cover the sort of court history. Um, you know, instead of covering the, the views of the scholars, the, the, the scholars, um, the bureaucrat scholars who kind of wrote most of the histories. So then they suggested a way to do it. And so, in fact, it did, re- my method does, in fact, bizarrely reflect a sort of a, a, a new take on Chinese history. And they, and that they, they, they offered, um, language and ideas structure how to do it so some of the most terrible i mean obviously sometimes i virtually wept at my desk <laughs> well that's, that's big of you <laughs> to admit that <laughs> but then this book really is extraordinary i find myself dipping back in and out of it since I, I got it last year and we we first spoke on the show and i will continue to do that it's really it's a, a you know gift that keeps on giving if you, you ask me i can only uh advise anybody who loves history and who loves great storytelling to look into this book for the very reasons that we've all outlined so far in this discussion. What do you think 
would be the most extraordinary find, either archaeologically, something like Alexander's body or the Ark of the Covenant or Emperor Qi's uh, tomb in China. Well, I think, I think you know, I think, um, Cleop, you know, the, the, the grave of, well, yeah, the, I think the grave of Alexander would be the most amazing, um, the Soma, yeah. um, where his body was. And I think, I mean, I think the sort of Ptolemy's um, hijacking of, of, um, of his body of, and- of Alexander's body has got to be the great sort of nec- necrophile um, kidnapping <laughs> of all time. Um, it was more valuable than most of the land which the others all claimed. I yeah. mean, when they're all standing around the bed of Alexander in what, 323 BC? Yeah, and you have the body. Whoever had the body controlled the world. That was the idea. And, um, and of course, the Ptolemies put it to really good use mm. right up until Cleopatra. Yeah. And, um, you know, and there's, there's a lot to be said for the body. I mean, Putin stealing Prince Potemkin's body. Right. Um, very recently. No. I mean, this is going on now in 2023, 2022. Just six months ago, um, Putin stole the body of Prince Potemkin. Um, that's, you know, Potemkin and Catherine were the first. Catherine the Great and Potemkin was my first history book. And um, it's, it's now a kind of important book because it really tells the story of how um, your, Rom- your Romanov's book is just yeah. fantastic. But that particular book tells the story of how um, the Romanovs and Russia annexed Ukraine mm. and Crimea. Mm. So it's kind of like very relevant Precious. now. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's relevant. And if anyone wants to know how on earth Russia ended up with Ukraine and Crimea and, and, um, and you know, what Putin has based his claim on, that Catherine the Great and Potemkin is the story that does it. But of course, also, it's the story of the great, the greatest love affair in history, all told in their letters. So it's, a, it's an interesting book. And of course, there are scurrilous rumors about her, which you um, attempt to dispel in the book too. Terrible things that were said by her successor and son. Yeah, when they were said about, they were said about Potemkin as well. I mean, the phrase mm. Potemkin village. Right. Um, is, you know, part of popular discourse. But there were no Potemkin villages. I mean, Potemkin founded cities like Mariupol, Odessa, Sebastopol, Kherson. Places um, that are in the news right now. They're huge cities. So they weren't Potemkin. Those, those were the Potemkin villages. So you can see that actually Potemkin was one of the great, um, successful imperial colonizer of all time. Um, now being in, being an imperialist, Especially a Russian imperialist is certainly out of fashion at the moment. Oh, yeah. But, um, but, you know, Catherine and Potemkin, they were, they were ruthless imperialists, ruthless Rus- Russian imperialists, but they were also humane. They were also part of the Enlightenment. Absolutely. They couldn't have been more different from Putin, who's now commandeered their story for his own nationalistic, um, na- ultra nationalistic, um, ends, which is horrible. They would have hated him. So we've come full circle again. And I'm so pleased we got to sit down and, and talk one more time. And uh, well done again on the book. But we end on Russia again. Thanks for having me. It is the most important story yes. in the world right now. So. It is the big story in the world. And, you know, I mean, a lot of, I mean, if you, if you know, the book ends with Ukraine and, and Russia. And, and I think there's a sort of, I, you know, I show how Ukraine developed in the book in, in, in considerable detail, including some bits that are sort of less covered now, for example, the Ukraine during the world, what happened in Ukraine in World War Two. So the key thing about Ukraine is to, is to support Ukraine, support Ukrainian democracy and the right to sort of be free of Russia while not concealing 
the, the, the darker bits of Ukrainian history, particularly in World War II, um, which, which we shouldn't conceal. Well, you don't leave anything um, concealed in your book. Thank you so much for writing it, and thank you for coming to see us. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun as always. Thanks, Cliff. Thank you. Cliffcentral.com.